Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to Office Hours. I'm your host, Daniel Pink, broadcasting from our state-of-the-art facility here in my garage in Washington, D.C. Thanks for being one of the several hundred listening live right now, uh, or the tens of thousands who will be listening to the recorded version of this on iTunes. Uh, we're excited to start Season 2 of of office, of office Hours. We had a great, great Season 1 with a great parade of really great guests, and Season 2 will be, I think, even better, as you'll see today. So let's get started. Decisions, decisions, decisions. So much of our lives revolves around that. Should I take that new job? Should I hire this person for, our, for my company? Should I break up with my boyfriend? Should I tell my girlfriend that I love her? Should I go to this college or that one? Should I pursue this graduate degree even if I'm not all that into the subject? Deciding is what we do. We do a lot of deciding all day, every day. But today's guests say we're not very good at it. In, in fact, in many cases, we just plain stink. Uh, we consider our options too narrowly. We look for information that confirms our biases. We're too swayed by short-term emotions and way too confident in our long-term predictions. It's a wonder we get anything done at all. Fortunately, our guests are here to help. They are Dan Heath and Chip Heath. You know them from their previous blockbuster, two really outstanding books, really, folks, Made to Stick and Switch. Now the brothers Heath are back with, I have to say, having read it, an equally great book, truly equally great book. It's called Decisive. Chip Heath, Dan Heath, welcome to the program. Thanks so Thanks much for having us on. All right. So it's sort of, I, I, I like how, I, this is a, we only have guests who are, re, dual guests who are related to each other. We had Teresa Mobile and her husband. Now we have the brothers Heath. Um, so this is going to be really exciting for us. So let me explain to you and our audience how Office Hours works. On each program, we open the phone lines for an hour, and our guests and I take your questions, questions about work, business, life, careers, education, anything you want. If you have questions, we have answers, and when we don't, we make something up. As we like to say, this program is car talk, but for the human engine. Now, if you're listening, and we've got just even more callers, even more folks coming in listening live, which is really terrific. If you want to ask a question, and you're listening to this live, press star 2. Star two on your phone. That will allow our crack team of producers to see you on the control panel. Um, and I'm always excited to say that I have a control panel. I'll say your name. Josephine in St. Louis, you're on the air. Um, you can ask questions that way. We've also found that a lot of people who are listening live like to ask questions via Twitter. If you want to do that, just use my Twitter handle, at Daniel Pink. So let's go to um, the Heath Brothers, uh, their terrific book. It's called Decisive. And the subtitle is How to Make Better Choices in Life and Work. It's just a really, really practical, smart book about how to make decisions. But let me tell you guys, um, let's start here. Let me tell you how, how, you know, I was taught to make decisions, okay, in a very analytical, rigorous way. So let's say I'm deciding back when I had jobs to take a job. And what I would do is I would say I'm going to analyze this. What I'm going to do is I'm going to draw, take a piece of paper. Back in the days when we used paper, take a piece of paper and draw a line down the center. And on the left side, make a list of the pros, and on the right side, make a list of the cons, and that's gonna allow me to make a decision. And after reading your book, that seems like a pretty bad idea. Tell me why. Well, there's a couple of problems with uh, pros and cons. And, and one thing is that, that we start a pros and cons list by considering one thing. You know, we're saying, should I take this job? Should I? you know, buy this rental home or, or whatever the case may be. And, and what that means is that the starting place for our pros and cons analysis already bakes in one of the thorniest biases of decision-making, which is what's called narrow framing, which is our tendency to restrict ourselves to one option or one way of looking at a dilemma. And so pros and cons are kind of problematic from the start. But, but the second thing is how ridiculously easy it is to game a pros and cons list. I mean, I suspect mm. we've all done this before. That mm -hmm. you know, you're, you're thinking about buying a new iPad, and so in some in some approximation <laughs> of, of rigor, you you create a pros and cons list, and you know, on the pros side, you say, uh, okay, well, it's it's stylish, and it's going to be good for my productivity, and and I can work away from home, and it's going to be lighter when I travel, and won't that help my back problems in the long term, and 
Uh, and then on the other side, you write, well, I can't afford it. And so right. it's, pro, it's four pros to one con, and you decide, yep, better buy that iPad. And, and so the point is that the pros and cons list, because they're all just generated by um, what we're generating in our own heads, often just serve as a sort of rational veneer for what our guts wanted to do anyway. Mm, interesting. So there are a couple of things embedded in that, in, in, in that response that I think really go to the heart of this. Um, let me pick up on one, uh, and I want to get back to another aspect of this, is, um, is confirmation bias. Um, I, I'll give you, um, and I want you guys to talk about that, but let me give it to you from, from, uh, from, from my perspective, and your book helped me really understand this. Um, every once in a while, people will come to me and say, Dan, I want your advice. And I will give them their advice. And being kind of a rational, left-brain guy, in spite of all that I write about, being like sort of a super hyper-rational kind of dude, um, I will give them un honest, unvarnished advice. And I found after a while that they weren't coming to me for advice. They were actually coming to me to confirm decisions they'd all made, already made. So why don't you tell me about confirmation bias and how it stands in the way of our making decisions about buying an iPad or even um, more, something more important, taking a job. Yeah, there's one of the one of the things that you learn, especially being married, is that there are certain questions that the answer is baked into the question. So you know, one of your kids comes and says, "Do do you like my drawing?" You know, there, there's there's only one right answer to that. If your spouse says, "You know, does this look good on me?" There's only really one right answer to that. And and, so, and for those and for those who have a hard time following, what would that answer be? Uh, yes. Honey. <laughs> okay, got Looks it. Great. I'm taking notes here. Uh, my wife so, uh, is producing the show, and she's sitting right next to me. So this is very helpful. <laughs> so so the, the, the psychology of this is that we, we kind of go through life doing that false question asking. Uh, and, and psychologists call it confirmation bias because we set out with a theory that we want to confirm. And even if we're really trying to be even-handed, we kind of subtly bias the way that we look at information, the way that we collect information, the way that we think about information in a way that ends up confirming our hypothesis that we started out with. And so, you know, if you, if you imagine two folders in front of you, and one folder is labeled stuff that supports your current view, and the other label is stuff that contradicts your current view. You know, it's kind of clear which folder you're dipping into, and study right. after study has shown this. And so, you know, the, the ultimate weirdness that is produced by this is the, the American Idol contestant that just cannot sing a note and is utterly shocked when they get that feedback from the judges because, you know, people are kind and they know what the right thing is to say when you, you know, belted out a tune and they congratulate you. And so you can kind of walk through your life unless you're really hard and dedicated about looking at information that disconfirms your hypothesis. You can walk through life and the world will happily show you information that confirms your hypothesis. And right. there's actually there's actually there's actually right, a yeah. fun study that uh, that kind of brings this home. Dan, if you wouldn't mind being a guinea pig, maybe we could run this live and and the the listeners can can play play at home. That would be so, an exciting moment in the history of non-radio. Let's do it. <laughs> so there there's a psychologist named uh, Andrew Wasson, and he has a famous study where the starting point is that he shows his participants a sequence of numbers. So like imagine. Uh, seeing the sequence 15, 20, 25. And the question is, what's, what's the underlying sequence of numbers here? And so in that case, it might be, you know, increasing multiples of five. Yep. Uh, and, and so now I'm going to give you another sequence, and then I'm going to give you a chance uh, not to guess at what the sequence is, but just to suggest, you know, um, an example of, of whether something would fit it. So, so like in the example of 15, 20, 25, what you could say to me is um, 30, 35, 40. And then I would tell you, yes, that fits the rule, or no, that doesn't fit the rule. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Okay, so, so the three numbers that are in this next sequence are 2, 4, 6. And your, your goal is to play back three numbers to me to test your theory of what the rule is. Okay, um... How about um, three seven ten? Yes. Okay. And then you can ask it. me. You can ask me another one. 
Okay, how about, um, how about now you're above my pay grade because we're in two digits. Um, how about uh, uh, nine, four, 13? No. Oh, ouch. Okay, how about four, nine, 13? Yes. Okay. So All what right, do you I'm think zero. the rule is? Um, I think the rule, and I feel like I'm being led down a dark alley by a guy. You're not, that actually. Wipe <laughs> my wallet. No, that's cool. Um, I think the rule is uh, um, a lower number. It's the sum of a lower number and a higher number in sequence. And then the oh, third God. Number I, is the sum. I thought, I thought so, you had cracked it, and then you actually uh, you, you came up with something far more sophisticated than, than the rule. The rule was simply uh, increasing numbers. Um, oh, okay. I, 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 sh- I should have known that Dan Pink would be at the 99.9th percentile on this thing. So the mistake that, that I made and that Chip made and that, that most everybody makes on this study is when you see the numbers 246, yeah. a lot of times Wasson's uh, participants would ask things like, well, does 8, 10, 12 fit the rule? Because you think, oh, it's just even numbers. Right, and you would say, yeah. Um, the answer would yeah, be yes. Exactly. And, and then they might ask, well, what, they might get a little crazy and say, what about 24, 26, 28? And again, the answer is yes. Um, and, and so you can see what's going on there is that people come up with an initial hypothesis of what they think is right. They think to themselves, oh, 2, 4, 6, it must be even numbers. And then they seek out information to confirm that hypothesis. They say, does example, 8, 10, yeah. 12 fit? Yeah. And yeah. now I, I know this is... This is maybe a lot, uh, a little more math than some of your uh, some of your listeners bargain for. But but we I think love you can math see, on this program. I think you can see how this translates to normal life. Like you you have a friend that wants to start uh, a business selling cupcakes, and so they have a they have a hypothesis in their head, the same as this math game. And the hypothesis is, hey, I can make a living at this, and so they start looking for information to support that, and exactly. so they're. They, they find it easy to, to identify that information because they know their friends love their cupcakes and they know, uh, you know, every time they bring their cupcakes to a party, they, they get eaten immediately and people rave about them. But what they're not doing is what you did instinctively to your credit, which is look for disconfirming information. You know, can we, rather than simply collecting things that flatter what we already thought, can we, can we find ways to check ourselves? So in the, in the cupcake example, it might mean can we have a blind taste test where mm. we, we get people to compare our cupcakes with, you know, a couple of competitors and see which ones they really prefer? And that's, that's, that's the difficult lesson of the confirmation bias. Right, right. It's good. And you guys have some really good ways to overcome that confirmation bias. Let me just say for uh, we have even more people coming in here that we're talking to Dan Heath and Chip Heath. They're authors of, you know them from Major Stick and Switch, to extraordinarily wonderful and successful books. And now they're back with, a book I really, really, really love, uh, which is Decisive. Um, it's a book about making decisions, and it really goes into the social science of uh, underlying some of the problems we have making decisions. But what I really like about this book is that it's just chock-a-block with really practical remedies and things that you can do, and, and they've outlined a process uh, for making uh, decisions. And in fact, let's go to that right now, if you guys won't mind. And let's actually, let me pick up on that um, let me pick up on that cupcake example. We'll just go with, we'll, we'll go with that. Um, um, so let's say that um, I just, I, I, we'll make it, we'll make it personal. We'll decide to, that, that I am a, say that I am a, uh, an adroit and uh, successful amateur cupcake baker. Um, and, and let's say that I want to leave the very lucrative world of writing uh, printed matter and leave and, and go to the more lucrative world of selling cupcakes. And um, my cupcakes are really popular. Um, let's talk about how I should make that decision. And before we get to that, there's something that really, really stuck out with me, and I'm looking for the exact quotation, and it, and it is this, and it goes to the pro-con list, which is that you guys say, and it's very compelling, that process matters more than analysis, that having a process to make decisions is more important than, say, being simply analytical. So tell me about that, and then let's work through your process to decide whether I should um, – set up Pink's cupcakes here in the Cleveland Park neighborhood of Washington, D.C.? Well, I, I, I'm glad that you found that quote compelling because that was, that, that was one of the biggest fears that we had in writing the book. It's, it's hard to get excited about a process. But Not for me, guys. If you, think about, if you think about the analysis that we do in especially business organizations, it's very often analysis 
devoted to the same kind of decision setup that we talked about with the pros and cons. So right. you may have a, have a team that's thinking about, should we acquire this company or not? But And they're doing hard analysis, but they implicitly know what the, the senior leadership team wants the numbers to show. And, exactly. you know, occasionally, occasionally that may show up different, but, you know, when you've got an Excel spreadsheet going into the 400th column, the assumptions that you make can be tweaked to make anything look like a pretty good, reasonable idea with a long enough payout. And so the first thing that we would say to the cupcake maker is the first stage in the decision process is don't limit yourself by just considering the one item on your pros and cons list or the one candidate for the merger. You want to widen out your options. And, and there's a great study that we found that suggested there was this German technology firm that had kept these obsessive records about all of their strategic decisions, so elaborate oh, yeah, yeah. meetings. Yeah. And, and 10 years later, they went back to this leadership team that was still basically intact, and they said, with the benefit of 10 years of hindsight, which of these decisions from 10 years ago were really successful, kind of okay, or pretty poor? And they were pretty hard graders. They graded most of their decisions as being kind of whelming or poor. But you were six times more likely to wind up in the very successful in retrospect column if, if at the time they were considering two alternatives as opposed to one. And so the first thing we would say to the cupcake maker is, you know, don't take writing books off the table. You know, you know maybe you could write a cupcake book as well as produce your cupcake. Oh, or maybe yeah. you could write a book about the food industry. You know, right. so, you know, one or two more options might be you in good stead. Yeah, so that's the first. So you guys have a process here, and I think it's very effective. Um, it's, it's the acronym RAP, W-R-A-P. And so the, so the W would be, for me, I'm deciding whether to go into the cupcake business. One, W, widen my options. So, so maybe I just want to stick making, a, um, uh, making cupcakes for friends. Maybe that's going to be more satisfying to me. Maybe I want to think about doing a cupcake book. Uh, maybe I want to think about maybe doing kind of a, instead of going in, into the retail cupcake business, maybe doing something um, on a smaller scale, um, exactly. you know, sort of yeah. a private chef cupcake business, um, which sounds like a nightmare. Well, it could, anyway. be a, it could be a giveaway for your next book. I mean, this time they got the, the writing pad, but next time it could right. be a Yeah, okay, so that's, this is really good, you guys. So that's it. So number one is widen your options, okay? That's the W. The R is a real, a reality check, right? A reality check your assumptions. Now, this is where we get into, um, this is where we get into confirmation bias, right? So tell me how do, I, how do I reality check this assumption that my cupcakes are awesome and I'm a smart guy who knows about business and therefore I can create an awesome cupcake business here in Northwest Washington, D.C. How do I reality check that assumption? So this is where this is where the blind taste test comes in as a okay. way of, of checking your natural your natural enthusiasm for what you're doing. It also means that that you've got to be disciplined about seeking out disconfirming information. So right. for instance, you know what's the what's the success rate for for um, you know food entrepreneurs or restaurateurs in your area, and can you get that from an SBA or from a bank? Um, can you talk to a couple of people who have who have started you know, a cupcake business if you can find enough, or a bakery if you need a broader set. And, yep. and don't just talk to the people who are wild successes. Also talk to the people who, who gave it their best shot and failed. And see what you can learn about, you know, the way this actually uh, will play out in the real world. And so the, the, the basic point is that naturally we're going to crave information that tells us what we want to hear. You know, that, that our cupcakes are, are brilliant and that the idea is... Uh, is insanely good, and we're going to make a lot of money. And so, where the process part comes in is in having the the the, the kind of discipline to go looking for the other side of the ledger as well. Yeah. Now, when I'm reality checking my when I'm reality checking my assumptions, I should probably talk to some experts, right? I mean, I want people who know about retail, who know about uh, I guess bake, bakeries and restaurants and so forth like that. Uh, so, when I talk to experts. Um, what should, how should I have, what should I ask experts to reality check my assumptions? Should I say, hey, do you think Pink's Cupcakes is going to succeed? Yeah, this is one of the most interesting things that we, we ran across in doing the research for the book. The right question to ask the expert is, how often do people like me succeed in this business? And so what you're essentially asking them for is, a, is kind of a, a, an average rate of success. And experts are really good at doing that. 
the interesting thing is that experts are subject to the confirmation bias too. Right. And especially if the expert is your friend, they want you to succeed, and, and they kind of like the passion that you have for your cupcakes. If you ask them the question of what do you think my chances are to succeed, even if they're trying to be really honest, the confirmation bias is kicking in in the back of their mind, and so they're going to they're going to give you a positive read on the situation without, in some cases, even consulting their mental database of all the entrepreneurs that they've known that has failed in the past. Yeah, and in fact, uh, there's a there's a guy named Phil Tetlock who who wrote a uh, a brilliant book called Expert Political Judgment. How good yes. is it? Um, and what he did was he surveyed. And to save those of you, to save those of you who don't want to read it, the answer is not very. <laughs> exactly. So you know, all, th- those of us who watch Meet the Press and CNN, and you know, all the pundits are always saying what's going to happen in the future. Haven't you ever wanted to hold their feet to the fire? Uh, well, it turns out Phil Tetlock did exactly that. He he tracked the predictions they made and whether or not they came true over a period of years, in some cases decades. And what he found is that they have an absolutely miserable uh, prediction record. And in fact, what he found, kind of the headline of his findings, was that even the best forecasters did worse than what he called a crude extrapolation algorithm, which is a mouthful. But basically what it means is that you take uh, the actual experience over the past couple of years, like let's mm-hmm. say we're trying to predict if the economy is going to grow or not, yeah. what, what you do with the crude extrapolation algorithm is you say, okay, on average over the last three years, the economy has grown at 2.4%. So what we're going to predict is that next year it's going to grow at 2.4%. It's just kind of you know taking a very simple calculation and extending it forward as right. opposed to the supposed vast reservoirs of knowledge that these pundits uh-huh. have that they're drawing on. And what he found was that these simple calculations trumped the experts again and again and again. And that's why Chip's point about experts is important. When we talk to our cupcake expert, we don't want to put him or her in the, in the shoes of predicting what's going to happen for us. Yeah. What we want them to do is to speak to the actual record of all the dozens or hundreds of people that they've served in the past. Yeah, I thought that was a really great point. I, I really found that point so, so interesting, and I found the evidence so compelling. Um, and you know, if, if there's, if, if there's, if there's one, I mean, there are many, many, many great takeaways in this book, seriously, but, um, the, the takeaways about base rates, the importance of understanding base rates is, um, is important. That is, we tend to think sometimes that we're, we are ourselves a little too special and we don't look enough at kind of the, uh, the averages when we make decisions. So that's, so what we're doing, we're thinking about pink cupcakes, we're widening our options. We're reality testing our assumptions. We're looking, what's the base rate of success in bakeries in Washington, D.C.? Um, what, is, um, uh, what do the data tell us about the success of small businesses in general? Uh, what, is the, what does it tell us about uh, the success of, product, of, of operations selling only a single product rather than a whole suite of products? So now we've got WR, widen our options. We're reality checking our assumptions. The A, I want to attain some distance, guys. What do I do to attain some distance? So attaining some distance says that you've got some options in front of you. You've collected some information about them. But there's always, there's always fear and anxiety and emotion about making a decision. Very often we're, we're kind of tempted by the status quo because it looks like a loss to move away from something that we valued. So you know, even if you're thinking about being a cupcake entrepreneur, you might miss those wonderful spins in front of a computer putting words on the page. Uh, you know, if you if you if you went with the cupcake thing, you might you might put yourself into social situations where you have more anxiety about having to sell. Although you've written a book on that, so you're going to be okay on that. Um, <laughs> and and so there there are lots of there are lots of worries and concerns that come up in in day to day decisions that kind of cause us to wake up at 2 a.m. and kind of be wide awake because we're wired with adrenaline because we start thinking about the decision. And what attaining some distance says is that very often what you have to do is step back and involve some other emotion. So emotional decision-making is not bad. Short-term emotional decision-making is bad because the short-term doesn't persist into the long range. And, you know, if there are things that you want to accomplish with your life, if there are things that you want to accomplish in an organization, those are the long-term enduring core principles that, that we think people ought to be considering and putting on the same playing field as the short-term immediate emotion. And, and so, for example, one technique that we found that is freakishly useful in helping people put those things in perspective is 
to get a little distance by imagining yourself advising your best friend. So suppose your best friend were considering the cupcake versus the book writing decision. What would you advise them to do? Yeah, this is, and this so, is it, this, I have to say, this, learning this technique or sort of understanding the basis of this technique of um, uh, this, what, what we're talking about here, what advice would you give to a friend, your best friend, is to me, and I'm not exaggerating here for once, um, I'm not exactly, I, I think it's, understanding that is worth the price of the whole book. I think that that single technique can, it can really have a huge effect on people's tra- uh, decision making. So, 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 so I'm, forgive me for interrupting, so to carry that through. No, I, I think that's been, been our experience. I mean, it's the closest thing that I've seen to a decision-making magic trick because, yeah. like, there, there was a case study that we, we use in the book in the back that was from a, a conversation that I had at dinner one night, and there was this young woman, 27 years old. She grew up in China, moved to the States uh, fairly young, went to school here, got her MBA. She had a cool job. She was working for fashion for one of the world's biggest fashion companies, but she was living, and we, we made up a hypothetical situation, uh, city here uh, for her uh, to protect her identity. But she was living in, say, Fort Wayne, Indiana. So, you know, mm-hmm. the corporate headquarters were there. That's where she went to work. She owned a house there. But she was single, and she wanted to meet a guy that she could marry and have a family with. And she just wasn't meeting the men that she wanted to meet in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And there was another friend of hers who, in the same group who was actually living in, say, Chicago, a big city, lots of social life, lots of young people the same age. And the friend and her coworkers actually had been encouraging her for months to move to the big city. And she just hadn't hadn't done it. And so she was describing the decision one night at dinner. And and I asked her the best friend question. I said, you know, what would you say if your best friend were sitting right here? And, you know, she was agonizing about whether to move to Chicago or stay in Fort Wayne. What would you tell her? And she just blurted out, oh, move to Chicago. And oh yeah. She, her eyes got wide, and she kind of—it was just shocking to her because it was so easy to advise the friend in the situation. And well, one of the things you guys—one of the things you guys say in the book is that when you ask people that question, they give you the answer right away. Yeah. As if it's kind of yeah. like sort of you know somewhere lodged in their head, just waiting to be disgorged. Yeah, it it doesn't happen every time, but like you know, four out of five times, it's just surprising how fast people blurt it out, and. And the point, the point is that very often we get paralyzed by the immediate emotions. But what yeah. we're better at with our friends is taking the long view. And if we can occasionally encourage ourselves to do that or encourage each other to do that, to, you know, our spouses or our kids or our coworkers at work, taking that distance perspective is really, really useful at that moment that you have to choose between options that are all pretty attractive and pretty good, but maybe for very different reasons. Yeah, I, I really love this part. I think it's so. I think it's so useful. We got a lot of really good examples in there, and I'm just turning to the section in the book here. I want to just do two things, then we'll talk about the P, then we'll take some questions. The P, let me know the letter P. Um, it says um, um, you you had a. Uh, I guess it was this. It's a, it's a study. Let me just see here if I have this right. Oh, I guess it was a poll, but basically, um, uh, consider a male undergraduate who is facing a dilemma like this one. Uh, you were thinking of calling a girl from your psychology class whom you like, but you've only talked to her, with her once. You're afraid that she won't remember you when you call. You decide to, and here are your choices. A, wait until you talk to her more before calling. B, just go ahead and call her. Now, tell me um, the difference in response to this. I, I oh, actually... I actually took this poll live uh, uh, just yesterday, and it is so funny to hear the responses because what happens every time is the vast majority of people say that for themselves, they would wait. Yeah. And then uh, the, the second part of the study is to say, okay, well, now imagine that it's your best friend telling you about this girl that he met in his psychology class. What would you tell him to do? Should he wait or should he call her? And they, they all say, oh, go for it, man. Yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. And, and, and I think that um, uh, I, I really – there's so much good stuff in this one, one area here, too, but I want to get to the, to the P here. But, but the other thing that you found, I love that example, too, because as someone who was an undergraduate male with women in a psychology class, I can relate to it deeply. Um, uh, what you also say is that, our, and I think this is a really important analytic point in understanding why asking this question, what advice would you give to your best friend? You also have a great example uh, at a corporate level of Andy Grove, the former head of Intel, making a decision to get out of memory, get out of memory 
um, as a business and asking the question, what would our successors do? Uh, which is another really good way of looking at this. But in the question of what would you advise your best friend to do, and I'm going to quote you guys from the book here, which I think is really important in locking in the, the, this point. You say, the researchers have found, in essence, that our advice to others tends to hinge on the single most important factor, while our own thinking flits among many variables. When we think of our friends, we see the forest. When we think of ourselves, we get stuck in the trees. And if there's any sort of kind of cognitive shift in decision-making, I think it's just instantly valuable here. It's that one right there. So we're back to cupcakes here. Sorry to belabor this. So we're widening in our options. We're reality-checking our assumptions. We're attaining uh, distance, W-R-A. We need the P. The P is prepare to be wrong. Tell me about that. So prepare. So, go ahead, what did, you, what, did you, what did you decide on the cupcake versus book writing in the attain some distance phase? Um, you know what? I am, um, I am going to, even though I've attained some distance, um, and I've talked to a self-selected group of friends to confirm my bias, and I am ready to put down the pen and the keyboard and get into the kitchen. All right. We can work with that. All right. So I'm happy to go the other is, way, too. I just I figured it would be no, more interesting if I, if I decide no, to. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely more interesting. So yeah. the P is to say, Prepare to be wrong. And what we're trying oh, for here is, is not, to, not to be pessimistic because we think you have a bright future ahead of you as a cupcake manufacturer. Well, thank you. But, but the question is, are there, for example, are there situations in which you would revisit the idea of making cupcakes? And so could you set what we call a tripwire, which is oh. a, a state of the world that would cause you to kind of snap up and say, you know, I need to revisit this decision. So maybe it's a, a budget that you set aside so after I blow through my first $10,000 on the cupcake business. Yeah. If, if I have, haven't gotten strong feedback that my cupcakes are selling, that I'm on my way to a productive business, you know, I've gone to the farmer's market, you know, four weeks in a row and it's been profitable every week. You know, if you're not getting those early indications, then, then what we would like you to do is to reevaluate the decision at that time. Now, tripwires you can imagine setting them for, you know, in a merger decision in the business. If the price goes north of $5 million or if that technology that we're buying the company for, if the tests on that don't pan out, we better revisit our decision. And what's nice about that is it prevents you from falling into a situation where things have gone badly wrong, but you're tempted to escalate and throw good money after bad. Right. But in the meantime, it also allows you to relax. And so, you know, if, if you haven't exceeded your $10,000 budget, as a tripwire, or if you haven't yet, you know, done, you, you say another tripwire might be, say, I want a clear market test in the next six months that, you know, blind taste test, I've got a recipe that beats the competitive cupcake product. And so suppose it's four months in and you still haven't had that positive test in the blind taste testing situation. You can relax because your tripwire hasn't been tripped yet. And so what we're trying to do is give you some insurance on the downside, yeah. but also give you space in the middle to experiment and play. Right. You also talk in this section about preparing to be wrong, another really great idea um, sort of uh, uh, called uh, perspective hindsight, prospective hindsight, or the idea from Gary Klein, which I've always thought was quite ingenious, which is a pre-mortem, a pre-mortem, not a post-mortem, but a pre-mortem. Tell me about how perspective hindsight and a pre-mortem can help me prepare to be wrong and maybe insulate myself from the downside? I think the, the mistake that, that we all make is when we make decisions, we tend to kind of make assumptions about how the future is going to unfold. You know, we treat the future as if it's a point that we can predict rather than as a spectrum of things that may surprise us for the better or for the worse. And so one thing we can do to improve the record of our decisions is to try to intentionally stretch our sense of how the future will unfold. And so one of the techniques we can use to do that, uh, which is so clever, uh, invented by the psychologist Gary Klein, is, is as you said, the pre-mortem. And so the idea here is that uh, we're imagining the future death of a decision and asking ourselves what killed it. So yeah. let's say you and your colleagues, you've just pulled the trigger on the idea to you know, release a product on November 1st. And so what the pre-mortem would, would tell you to do is 
get everybody in a conference room and say, all right, team, it's 12 months from now. The, the decision we just made is a total fiasco. Uh, <laughs> half of us have been fired. You know, maybe a couple of us have been sued. Uh, it was a nightmare. <laughs> and, and the question is, what made it a nightmare? What made it a failure? And so everybody in the group then privately you know, takes a few minutes to get their thoughts together and speculate on all the many things that could go wrong, you know, customer service problems or product deficiencies or supply chain issues. And once everybody's done their private brainstorming, then you compare notes as a group and you kind of chart out all the landscape of, of possible, you know, fiasco factors. And, and what you do at that point is, is, is pretty straightforward. You just try to forestall or, or prevent as many of those contingencies as you possibly can. And, and what's, so, what's so neat about this technique is it, it sounds like a bit of a buzzkill to be thinking about all the things mm-hmm. that could go wrong, but, but I think you'll actually find that it's, it's kind of an energy builder because it, uh, it requires a lot of creativity. And the great thing about it is you're, you're just brainstorming about failure rather than experiencing it. And, and the great thing about brainstorming about failure in advance is you can often prevent it from happening. Right. I, I think that's another really good idea. I think the, the pre-mortem and that kind of perspective hindsight is, is, um, is, um, is really, really effective. Now, uh, so let me just uh, check in here. We've been t- we're talking with the Heath brothers, Chip Heath, Dan Heath. Uh, they're the authors of this incredibly awesome new book called Decisive, How to Make Better Decisions. I'm sorry, How to Make Better Choices in Life and Work. It has a groovy uh, magic eight ball on the cover. Um, and in fact, I just got my little mini Magic 8-Ball um, uh, in the mail from being a pre-order person. So that's pretty, uh, in, in lime green, too. It's pretty cool. Um, and so uh, what, uh, if you're interested in asking a question uh, live to these guys um, or you have a decision to make, they can give you free advice. Uh, just press start two on your phone. Um, we'll be able to see you on the control panel. Remember, if you're listening to this on iTunes, don't press start two. Nothing will happen. <laughs> So um, let's go to uh, live on the phone. Let's go to um, let's go to Sacramento, uh, California. Uh, it's close to where you guys are. Sacramento, you're uh, real Linda. You're on the air. Hi, this is Adrian um, with the Youth Development Network team here in the conference Hi, room. Hi, Adrian. Thanks for, Hi. thanks for listening in. Uh, what's your question for uh, Chip and Dan? Um, quick question, but first I um, wanted to uh, celebrate the Heath brothers because in 2010, when the economic downturn hit the nonprofit sector in Sacramento, the switch model saved our hide, and we're still in business and still doing amazing things for young people because of implementing the switch model. Thank you for that. Thank you so wow. much. Right on. Awesome. Um, our, our question is this. Um, our question is, this is really, it seems hard enough to do this as an individual. How do you do this as a team? And, and it's a team that, it's a small team, and we're, we're more family than a group of people. And, and because of that, we're safe with each other, and, and we have some tough, crunchy conversations. But nonetheless, this is hard, because everything you just mentioned uh, is, is difficult to experience in, in a team. Um, so could you give us any advice on that? Yeah, great question, Adrian. Guys? So my sense is, and congratulations on having hard, crunchy conversations, because that's one of the first things that research has found that that distinguishes groups that succeed in the long term from groups that Mm -hmm. don't. So the ability to challenge each other, because it's always easier to help somebody else disconfirm their hypothesis than to disconfirm our own. And even in science, where scientists are trained to ask disconfirming questions, you know, the real disconfirming questions come from the people in your lab meetings, your colleagues as opposed to being generated on your own. So you're doing the right thing to start. But what Dan and I hope is that a lot of the techniques that we talk about in the book should transport very easily from an individual decision to a group decision. So, for example, widening your options, that's an easier sport to play with a team of people than by yourself. And the only exception to that, by the way, is there is a phenomenon that if you get into a group and one person comes up with a pretty good idea, the group will tend to camp out on that idea. And so a a, a real technique that helps all kinds of group discussions is just have everybody take a minute before you start discussing something and individually write down your ideas and have them in front of you. And that way, you know, if the first person comes up with a really good idea, other people haven't completely forgotten their good ideas would have come up otherwise. And so... That's something you can do in a group. The tripwires is something you can set in a group. Asking yourselves as a group, what do we really care about? What is our organization about? And especially in the nonprofit world, that that question of, you know, 
you don't ask the best friend question for an organization, but you do ask the Andy Grove question. Like, yeah. if, if they replaced us right now as the leadership team, what would the new leadership team do in this situation? And very often that's a clarifying exercise to go through as a group. Uh, that's you. excellent. It's a really helpful tip. Uh, thanks, for the, thanks for the call, Adrian. Um, uh, we got some com- quality questions coming in via Twitter. But, uh, let's go uh, to um, uh, Fort, Collins, uh, Fort Collins, Colorado. Fort Collins, Colorado, you're on the air with Chief Heath and Dan Heath and their great new book, Decisive. Fort Collins. Hello, this is Andrea. And Hi, I'm- Andrea. Hi, Dan. I'm a Ph.D. scientist, and I've done a lot of career mentoring for other younger scientists, including being National Committee on Employment. And I'd like to improve my mentoring skills. And like what they said um, a minute ago, you'd think that scientists are trained to ask disconfirming questions. But I found that that is not happening when young scientists are evaluating employment options. And for example, they go on to get a PhD, they may go on to do a postdoc. All along the way, they're in academia, having it be reinforced that there are, you know, that their skills are valued. But it's just heartbreaking to me when there's somebody who's, you know, 40 years old, <laughs> has completed a second postdoc and is not able to find um, a, a permanent employment situation and they're stuck and look back and say, why wasn't I given information along the way to realize that usually in most scientific fields, about half of the people who get PhDs don't get scientific jobs. Now, so, so Andrea, so you're looking for advice on what you can tell the people you're, you're counseling. Is that it? Yes. Okay, so um, um, Chip, Chip and Dan? Yeah, I think, I think that there's a couple of things that, uh, that I suspect are already in your toolkit, but, but maybe for everybody else listening as well, Especially given this time of year, there's probably someone in our family clans that's, that's graduating from, from high school or college or grad school that may be looking for what's next. And I think we can all benefit from, from two particular tools. Uh, the first is about widening options. You know, as part of the research for Decisive, I had a, a bunch of calls with individuals to talk about what they described as their most important professional dilemmas. And, and I, my guess is that probably half of them we're thinking, should I quit my job or not? And if you've been listening uh, since the beginning, you might already feel your mental alarm bells going off. That, that phrase, <laughs> or not, is, is a good sign that you may be trapped in a narrow frame. You're just thinking about one thing rather than widening your options. And so the first thing you can do for other people is, is try to catch them when you feel like they're making that, that, uh, that false leap and thinking about only one thing, thinking about quitting or thinking about only one opportunity or only one school and putting all their eggs in one basket and try to get them, you know, one rule of thumb is to try to get people to fall in love twice. You know, mm. uh, try to keep looking until you've found uh, two jobs that seem interesting to you or, or two schools or, or even better, three schools that seem interesting to you. And that, that puts you in a position where you're better able to assess, you know, with some semblance of neutrality, you know, the, the strengths and weaknesses of each option rather than um, shuttering yourself off and, and considering one. The, the second thing is something we haven't talked about so far, which is in any career decision, especially if it's new territory for people, they should consider what we call in the book ooching, which is, is sort of a ridiculous word, but I think it, it carries with it a powerful principle, which is the idea that the best way to see whether an option is good for us is to simply try it. So I was talking, for instance, to a, a guy who worked as a security officer at a university, and his decision that he was agonizing about was whether to, uh, to go back to get a master's in counseling, because he, he really craved that kind of human side of things, those, um, uh, building those relationships, helping people in that way. And that's a pretty big commitment. I mean, that would have taken him a couple of years and probably tens of thousands of dollars in debt, not to mention the, the income he would lose. And, and so my first thought was, can you ooch? Can you run a small test or a small mm-hmm. experiment to see whether this makes sense for you? And so we, we talked about that a little bit. 
and turned out his church had a kind of uh, volunteer counseling program on the weekends, and it had just never occurred to him to go and sign up for that and to try it out and to see if, if it really was as satisfying to him as, as it seemed in his brain. And, and so, especially for people graduating from school, uh, you know, there are, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of students who are going to enroll in law school and med school and pharmacy school this year, having never spent a day in a law firm or a hospital right. or a pharmacy. And that is just criminal decision-making. And we shouldn't, let any, <laughs> we shouldn't let anybody that we care about fall into that trap, and it's an easy one to fall into. So I think those are the two tools I would think about in your shoes, is how can I get people to widen their options? And the second thing is, how can I uh, persuade people to ooch and just to try a little sample of what they're thinking about? Yeah, great. that's a great answer. Let me take the, We've got a couple of questions on Twitter here, too, before we go back to the phones here. One of them is related to this. Uh, Margaret, uh, I'm not sure where Margaret is, but Margaret asks, uh, makes a really interesting, um, she asked actually specifically about ooch, so she's obviously read the book. Uh, she said, can you compare um, ooch to... Uh, lean startup, which I, I assume you guys are familiar with, um, and how those concepts connect. Chip, maybe I'll take that one since I just talked to uh, Eric Rees recently. Um, I, I think there's a direct hit. I mean, obviously, you you know your stuff because you've, you've read both books, and there's a ton of similarity between the two. What Eric talks about in that book is uh, the minimum viable product right. idea, which is which is the notion that if you're an entrepreneur, you've got an idea for a new product or a new service, the best thing you can do for yourself is get in the game. You know, mm-hmm. create, create something that is you know, some vague semblance of the product you hope to build someday and get it in people's hands and see what they think and see what feedback you get and then move on from there. Uh, in essence, not to let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And, and that's exactly the same spirit as Uching, you know, which is all about don't, don't store up your enthusiasm for counseling until you have the two-year master's degree because that's too expensive a bet to take. Instead, you know, go do the volunteer program at the church and take a week's vacation from your security job and go shadow a counselor. You know, make these kind of small, smart bets that can help you make a better decision. Yeah, and you guys have make an interesting point in there. I can't find a section in the book where you talk about basically uh, entrepreneurs um, uh, corporate entities tend to plan and entrepreneurs tend to experiment. Um, and uh, I think the Uching and the Lean Startup principles are, I, I think, insanely valuable for beyond actually starting a company for all kinds of, all kinds of decisions. We got a question from Mike uh, via Twitter here too. Mike's in St. Louis. Uh, he says, uh, on corporate decision-making, how do you influence corporate decision-making that is based on historical or politically-based decisions? So it sounds like a, Mike is so much frustrated that his organization or organizations that he's working with are kind of ossified in that regard. Is there a way to is there a way around that? Is there a way to melt that ice? Yeah. So so that, good question, Mike. I think uh, this is this is one of the the areas we struggle with the most because a lot of people have this problem in the real world of pol- really political decision making situations, especially in group situations and organizations. Let me throw out two tools quickly that I think uh, might help you in those situations. One is something we already talked about, which is the idea of tripwires. And what tripwires can do is, is not necessarily uh, influence the decision today, but, but rather pave the path for reconsidering it tomorrow. So, you know, a common situation we find ourselves in is our bosses, they have some pet project or p- pet decision that they really believe in, and we know full well, no matter how much we protest or debate, uh, you know, it's going to happen. And so, you know, rather than spend a fruitless energy protesting that decision, one smart thing you can do for yourself is just at the moment when you're talking about it, can you say, hey, let's, let's think briefly about what, what we expect to unfold and what might happen that six months from now would prompt us to make a different decision. Uh, because at that moment, you know, people tend to be overconfident, as we talked about earlier. They tend to think, Everything's going to work out according to their plan. And so it'll be pretty costless for your boss to say, uh, oh, well, you know, if, if sales slipped by 20% in that region after these sales tweaks, then, yeah, I, certainly we should take another look at that. But, but what that does for you is six months later, if your, if your worst fears have been realized, it kind of paves the way politically for you to revisit that without seeming like, you know, you're picking a fight with the boss. So that's, that's one tool. The second tool 
is, is from a guy named Roger Martin, who has written mm. a couple of great business books. And he's got what I think may be the single best question for group decision-making. And he says, this is intended for those, <laughs> those situations, I suspect we've all experienced, where group decision-making kind of degenerates into uh, factions, you know, and, and I'm saying I'm right, and you're saying you're right, and we're arguing with each other to see who can outlast the other. And he says, if you've got that kind of tribalism emerging, just pause the meeting and ask yourself a different question. Just say, given all of these options we're considering, what would have to be true for each of them to be the best option? And what, what he says it does is it kind of reframes the meeting because now it's not anymore about proving that we're right. It's about considering what information or what evidence we could gather that would make you right or that would make me right. And so it's, it's more about um, uh, not so much saying I'm right, I'm right. It's about what could we learn in the real world that would, that would determine the issue once and for all. So you might try one the- of those two tools. Sorry, Dan. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. It's, it's another example of um, it's another example of um, of um, there's another version of getting that distance, which I think is important. We have a few minutes left. Um, I want to get in a couple more calls here. Let's go to uh, let's go to Charles in New Orleans. Um, Charles, you're on the air with uh, Oh, thanks. Yeah, co-author uh, yeah. of uh, Decisive. What's your question, Charles? Okay, thanks. Uh, and it may be uh, more broad than what most people are interested in, but, but I'm, I'm trying to learn a lot about this topic of the millennial generation. Uh, you point out that today's executives resist organizational solutions because they need to show confidence and decisiveness. Uh, the millennials coming into a management or a group that supposedly is uh, bigger on collaboration and group effort and also more comfortable with uncertainty and doubt. Will they maybe be more open to organizational solutions than to individual solutions? You know, that, that, that is that a question, Charles. Uh, Dan, what do you think? Thanks, Charles. I'm not sure I have any special insight into that, honestly. I, I, I have no uh, special ex- expertise in, in the way different generations make decisions. Um, you know, I, I would point out that, that, that with, with collaborative decision-making, one approach that, uh, that is talked about in the literature is what uh, Paul Nutt, uh, who's a prominent decision-making researcher, he calls it bargaining. And it's basically the notion that if you want a decision to go smoothly in an organization, one of the easiest ways to accomplish that is to get everybody's buy-in up front. And I know, I know what, what your listeners are thinking when they hear that. They're thinking, oh, yeah, well, you know, uh, in the real world, it takes too long to do that. Uh, it's just not feasible to get everybody on board. And I want to completely acknowledge that, that this is a more time-consuming, a more difficult process up front. But there's a twist, and this is what's interesting about Nutt's research, is that while it can take longer to get that, that kind of bandwagon effect to, to accomplish that bargaining so that lots of different players are on board with the decision, the payoff is that it greatly accelerates implementation. And so it's really a question of how do you want to spend your time? You know, you could spend your time up front trying to corral everyone to agree and then have quick implementation, or you could make a really, really fast autocratic decision and then, you know, have to face foot dragging for the next six Mm -hmm. months or 12 months. And so in some ways, you're kind of just, you know, taking time from one pocket and putting in the other, to use a ridiculous metaphor. Uh, Yeah, if we only have a few more minutes left, we're going to go to try to get one more call in here. Let's go to Washington. Maryland, Washington, Maryland. You're on the air with Chip Heath and Dan Heath, authors of Decisive. Oh, hi. This is Claire. Hi, Claire. Um, I had a quick question. Do you think kids, particularly teenagers, can easily learn and use these techniques? And I'm kind of thinking in the context of choosing a college where, for example, my son is swayed by things like what the meal plan options are. Um, <laughs> if you could well, he says that's not an that. important part of the college experience. Um, all right, that's a yeah. great question, Claire. Thanks, thanks for that. Because uh, I, I actually, I was, um, Claire, it's a fantastic question. How does this apply to uh, uh, college decision making? You guys write a little bit about that, uh, and I was saying to you off air right before we got on that there's a whole kind of subsection of this that could go to making a decision about college. But tell us how we we should reason our way through that decision. Yeah, I, I think one of the one of the people that we quote in the book is this brilliant college counselor, and and she says that one of the mistakes that that people typically make in this situation, the students, young adults make in this situation, is they think that they need to go with the school that ranks highest 
that they can actually get into. And and we give a case study in the book of somebody that probably didn't choose the highest ranking school that he could possibly have gone to, but he chose a school that was right with him, and he ended up doing fantastically well in his career. Yeah. Uh, he actually became a PhD. This is something that his family never would have expected uh, when he set off to go to a, a small school in is Arkansas, Dan? Arkansas, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And and I think what your what your role is as a parent, and this is something that I was realizing my my daughters are younger than your son is right now, and so it's something that I'm starting to turn to with my ten year old, is you know, what we can do as parents is start teaching them a little bit about the process. So when your teenager comes in with a whether or not decision, you know, should I should I yell at the the friend who I think has been dissing me behind my back. You, you know, see if see if you can consciously and label the process, say, you know, are, are, are there any other options that you might want to consider here? And you don't have to answer that question for them. And I think that's what, you know, as, as teenagers get older, they bristle at the idea that you would be suggesting an answer to them. But what they might not object to is you suggesting a process for them to reach the answer. And hopefully by the time... They, they're making decisions about graduate school, they've internalized the process that you're starting to, to lead them along in, in the college decision. And, and by the way, that's a role that all of you who are leaders in organizations would play with your teams. You, you don't necessarily have to be making the call, but if you think of yourself as the, the kind of coach that's helping people think through, are we going through the right process here? If you get people going through the right process, you, can, you don't have to make the decision yourself. You don't have to make the final call yourself. Yeah, and you guys also have a, a nice way of, ref- of widening the decision-making there when you say the question with college is, is not which school should I go to, but at some level, what do I want out of life and what are the best options to get me there? And I think that that expands the scope. The other thing is that you also mentioned in the college decision-making process, and I say this you know, as a parent of a, of a 16-year-old, um, is that um, if you look at the actual criteria by which these rankings occur, these, on which these rankings are based, they're kind of irrelevant to the experience of being in college, many of them. Um, and so widening it out. The other thing that you mentioned is you, you, you mentioned some research um, uh, done in part by my old friend and, and former colleague, Alan Kruger, showing that um, uh, people who, who are able, people who say basically get into Penn and to Penn State, that is a, a state school and, a, and an elite private school who are qualified to go to both, have basically similar outcomes in their life depending on which choice that they make. So the idea that if you go to Penn, if you're qualified to go to University of Pennsylvania, private Ivy League, and, and you decide instead to go to Penn State, you're going to be in just as good shape as someone who decided to go to University of Pennsylvania. And so I think there's, I think there's a lot of great lessons for those of you out there um, helping your kids make decisions about college. Unfortunately, uh, Claire, thanks for that great question. Unfortunately, we're, um, we're out of time. I've got so many more questions to ask, so let me just... Um, do two things here. One, uh, say the name of the book. Decisive, How to Make Better Choices in Life and Work. It is, uh, listeners, a really, really excellent book. I mean, there's so many incredibly great takeaways in this book. Um, you, will, you will find yourself going back to it over and over and over again. And I am even, uh, something I rarely do is basically imploring my fa- some of my family members to read this book. Um, Heath Brothers, how can people find out more about you, the book, or anything else related to Matters Heath? They can come pay us a visit at heathbrothers.com. And in fact, on, on the website, we have a resources section which has all manner of free goodies, podcasts, downloads, workbooks that, that are all free for the taking. And all you have to do is sign up for our newsletter that we hardly ever send anyway. So, uh, so check that out. <laughs> so um, it's, it's heathbrothers, uh, all one word, heathbrothers.com, all kinds of good stuff there. You can find out about their previous books, which are also awesome, Major Stick. Uh, and switch. Uh, Chip and Dan Heath, thanks for um, being with us. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. That's it for Office Hours. I want to thank all of you for being with us. This program will be available for free in a few days at danpink.com, also on on iTunes, um, where we get our uh, really just a colossal audience. Um, I want you to stay, please stay tuned to the Office Hours page uh, and the Pink blog for more on our upcoming guests in season two. We had a great kickoff here season Season two with the Heath Brothers. We've got even more great guests coming up in the rest of uh, season two. So until then, for uh, producer Joseph uh, Hinton in Lynchburg, uh, director Jessica Lerner here at World Headquarters, I'm Daniel Pink. 
this is Office Hours. If you've missed any previous episodes, uh, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Uh, but you can listen to any of those episodes on iTunes, as always. Thanks for taking an hour to listen to Office Hours. 